Welcome to Conversations in Equine Science. My name is Kate Acton and I'm joined by Nancy McLean. And this is the podcast where we take equine research and try and make it accessible to horse owners and enthusiasts alike. Remember that with each topic we discuss, it's important to get professional advice before implementing any of the strategies. This week, Kate and I are going to continue to talk about muscle problems in horses. If you've listened to last week's episode, you know we talked about polysaccharide storage myopathy, and we talked about both types, one and two. Now, um, before we go on to this week, which we're talking about rhabdomyolysis and um, specifically recurrent exertional rhabdomyolysis and how it pertains to standard breads and thoroughbreds as far as their diets go. Now, uh, we did have an email. It was a question uh, pertaining to last week's episode. It's from Caitlin Rose. And she said, um, very interesting episode. I am confused about the causes of PSSM type 2. And I kind of discussed it with Kate previous to coming on here. And uh, we were thinking maybe we didn't um, even mention it, but um, it all pertains. PSSM1 and 2 is a glycogen synthesis problem. Now, PSSM1 is where there's actually a gene mutation, and it's linked to the GYS1 gene. Now, PSSM2 is still a glycogen metabolism problem. However, they don't know why it's not linked to that GYS1 gene. So that's the main difference. And that's why the biopsies reveal uh, in the muscles those globs of glycogen that there's so many of them in the muscle that um, the horse can't get rid of it. It kind of builds up. And then you see these black globs in your uh, biopsies that you do. So anyway, um, great question. And I'm glad we could uh, answer it because like Kate said, if one person's asking it, maybe there's 10 others that were thinking the same thing. So this week we're going forward and we're talking about a paper titled Trainers' Perceptions of the Impact of Different Feeding and Management Practices on Racehorses. They identified displaying symptoms of recurrent exertional rhabdomyolysis. This is by L.J. Wood, B.E. Lancaster, M.R. Brahaney, and C.W. Rogers. It is a 2022 paper. And basically, they took through a survey, they got data on the feeding and management of racehorses, both standard breads and thoroughbreds, and the practices perceived um, to benefit horses displaying RER. They collected all that, and then they did a a cross-sectional face-to-face survey of 100 registered uh, trainers, both 
thoroughbred and standard bred trainers. So some of their results were really surprising. Kate, we can go on and, and talk about the results if you want first, and then we can go on and discuss some about tradition on the racetrack and things like that. Yeah, I think that would be great. I was just going to say um, the actual term exertional rhabdomyolysis um, is probably something that's very familiar to anyone who works with thoroughbreds or standard bred racehorses. And I think it's something that's talked about a lot in other schools, maybe not so much. So for anyone that doesn't really know what the basis behind it is, is it's basically the term for various disorders that cause muscle pain and stiffness, but particularly that that muscle pain and stiffness has been triggered by exercise. And it's the most common equine myopathy that affects athletic breeds. So we see it across other competition um, horses as well. But the results were actually really interesting in this paper. And I thought like one that stood out to me in particular, when they interviewed these trainers, most trainers had sought advice about how to manage the disease um, from either a veterinarian or a fees representative. So they found that 63% of standard bred trainers and 78% of the thoroughbred trainers sought advice for this. But despite that, many of them through their responses indicated a lack of clarity on the fees and management factors. So I thought that was, to me, that really stands out because a lot of the time we talk about communication in um, veterinary and veterinary nursing and how it's a very tricky kind of angle to ensure knowledge has gotten across. Um, and in particular, you know, we mentioned about trying to make sure an owner has understood something without kind of patronizing, patronizing them as well, being like, you know, can you say it back to me or do you, are you sure you know what I've just said to you? Um, so it is a fine line. And I think it's it's not something that everyone is particularly well-versed in. Um, but then I thought that said, you know that episode we did, Nancy, about nutritional advice? And it just seems that like when it comes to equine, people are just doing what was always done for a lot of the time. And even when it comes to nutritionists, like, you need to make sure you have a certified, qualified nutritionist that is continuing like professional development and education and staying on top of new trends and what's changing in equine nutrition. Because what we were feeding 10 years ago isn't suitable, you know, to continue with the same practices now. Yeah. And it, they also, after talking to these professionals, there were a few trainers that recognized the fact that starch in the diet was associated with increased clinical signs of RER. And that was 26% of standard bred trainers and 13% of thoroughbred trainers. So, I mean, that's a very low amount of knowing that starch may be the problem here are another way to put it, carbohydrates may be the problem. And um, also, um, half of the trainers 
that had in RER horses, whether they were standard bred or thoroughbred, they decreased concentrate feeds on days off for all horses, but few trainers only decreased concentrate on days off if the horse displayed signs of RER. So that really didn't make much sense to me that, you know, they just continue to feed the same amount, even though there's a day off where the horse can't metabolize all those starches. And, you know, some horses can because they don't have a problem with that. But other horses, they have an issue with that type of metabolism. So those are the ones then that seem to um, have what used to be called back in the old days, a Monday morning disease. Yeah. Remember that? The, the I remember wagon, that one. Yeah. Yeah. That would pull the wagons. Um, they would be off on Sunday and then rehitch to work on Monday and end up with this uh, tying up disease. So um, it, it is kind of like it's so hard to break through that traditional thought. And I know I have even been there where uh, you're so used to doing things a certain way. It's very difficult to take that scientific findings and implement it because these racehorses are an income and they're an industry and um, they need a large digestible energy intake and you've always fed oats and molasses and certain sweet feeds and all that so it's very difficult to get off that wagon and, and actually make changes and I think as well like one of the management suggestions is to not give the horses a day off so they can continue to do light work on those days off they need movement they can't be held up in a stall. And so it was fascinating, too, that um, most trainers, 96% of the thoroughbred trainers and 84% of the standardbreds provided a day off. So they had no training days for these horses. I think in this study, they were lucky because um, a high percentage of them were out, turned out on those days to pasture. And they seem to have... Um, a lot of access to pasture. I'm trying to find what that statistic was again, because, um, yeah, so there is a trend in the data showing there's now a reduction in the number of trainers that will keep horses in a stable more than 12 hours a day. Um, so basically back in 2007, they did a survey and about 97% of trainers on average, would keep the horses in the stall more than 12 hours a day. So they might only be turned out for somewhere between six to eight hours. But they've now found that that number has dropped from 97% to 67%, um, particularly in standard bred trainers, they said, who provo provided more turnout in general. Um, but they were unable to really identify the primary reason for this change in management practice. They did hypothesize that this increased opportunity for exercise could be associated with an increased awareness by the trainers of the benefits that this kind of free roaming exercise causes. And also, I mean, once you do have them out and moving around, you're going to loosen up the muscles, get the blood flowing, 
And reducing the time in the stable has the added benefit of reducing any prevalence of those stereotypical behaviors as well. Yeah, I know over here in the United States, we don't give thoroughbreds on the racetrack a lot of turnout. The only reason for that is when they're fit and they're running and they're on a um, race schedule, they can really injure themselves being turned out because they're so pent up and they're so on the muscle. So we're prone not to turn out our thoroughbreds. And we even had a small, what we called a rolling pen to put our thoroughbreds in to let them roll and kind of have free exercise. But yet it was small enough where they really couldn't get running our hurt themselves and even that they would get so fired up and bucking and playing and we would only turn one out at a time so another horse wouldn't get injured Um, it was good for some but it was not good for others because it would kind of stress them out that they were in there alone and then some were just too flighty and too crazy we were worried they were going to get hurt. So the docile ones that could maybe go in there and roll and uh, be content, they were given that opportunity. But it's really, really tough. My one mare that's now 26, I used to uh, run her. I would have her in training at the track. And then after her race, I would reward her by taking her back to the farm and trail riding her and letting her have a little turnout. Well, one time she was so on the muscle, even after a long race, and it was like a mile, a mile and a quarter race, she tore around that paddock and crashed through the fence. And I'm very fortunate she did not have a life-threatening injury in that. And that was the last time I, uh, you know, let her have free turnout after a race. We did not bring her back to the farm except for trail riding and controlled exercise, or uh, we kept her at the track where um, at the end of a season when she would be on layoff, we would bring her home and turn her out for the winter. That's really interesting because I I wonder, it's so hard to know like what would help and what would hinder because maybe, I mean, in her case, obviously it's hindering and it's definitely personality plays a huge role. Like this is why we talk so much about the individual horse, but we know it hinders in her case because she had continuous access to that and then essentially ruined it for herself by running through the fence do you know i do think with the other horses like maybe there are some of them that get way too high energy when they're turned out because they're not normally turned out and maybe like through um consistency of like exposure to that they would start to calm down but it's such a catch-22 because they're such expensive animals and there's a pressure that comes with that too. And, you know, they are in one sense a commodity and they're working and they're doing a job and you kind of get stuck in this loophole of, you know, how much can we take a chance with to see if we can improve this for the horse? 
Well, and it was just as she um, went up in her conditions, which in racing, um, you might be a maiden, which means you haven't won a race. So um, then you win a race. The next race would be um, non-winners of two are non-winners of a race other than a maiden. So there's always little rules to each race you enter. As she moved up and won three races in a row, I kept rewarding her by saying, okay, we can go back to the farm and you can chill out a few days. But as she got you know, more powerful, more stronger, harder to gallop on a trail and have a hold of um, that's when, you know, I kind of said, all right, you're getting so full of yourself. We're going to keep you on the track until you're due for a turnout and a little layoff. Anyway, um, yeah, it is. And it's so much healthier if you can let them have free exercise. But I know in, in thoroughbreds, it's really a delicate line um, to walk. You know, you want to do what's right by them, but then you have to protect them from injury as well. Yeah. And protect yourself because you have to still handle them and uh, be able to intervene if things get out of control. So, but anyway, um, and each time we lowered that um, starch or that carbohydrate amount, because on layoff, they don't really need as much uh, feed. So, think of trainers that continue to feed I think in this particular paper um, it was like 10 pounds of feed a day so five pounds each feeding and that's typically what you'll see in thoroughbred circles in this country as well that that's how much they get to maintain a good digestible energy now of that this paper's recommending 20% of that be starch on, you know, only starch, 20% or less. Now, um, think of the people that I think the average in this paper was almost 34% starch. Mm -hmm. Well, that might be the, the reason for your tying up. And, um, you know, just you need to, to kind of bring down that starch to under 20%, or at least at 20%. I thought it was interesting too, Nancy, when they said um, there was that misconception between starch and oats. So a lot of the trainers associated with oats creating more of an issue um, with this RER. Um, I pronounce or is funny as well. I'm always very conscious of that when <laughs> I have to say letters. Um, in Ireland, we always say or, but yeah, R-E-R. <laughs> um, but the it was really fascinating that they didn't actually link the the reason the oats were causing a problem was because of the starch contents of yeah. the oats. So yeah. when they asked the trainers, you know, does high starch have an effect? They were a lot more divided and not as sure. But when they were asked if oats did, they were like, yeah, oats, you know, oats has a massive effect on it. Um, maize has even more starch as well, which was interesting too, that flaked maize. But from this, they mention a really interesting Swedish study. Um, it showed in standard breads that basically it's a misconception that racehorses can only obtain their dietary energy 
um, by the feeding of cereal concentrates. So because they have to expend such a huge amount of energy, they obviously get supplemented with additional feed. But there's recent work, it was 2017, a study in Sweden that demonstrated that standard breads in race training can obtain sufficient dietary energy from a predominantly forage or fiber-based diet. And it wasn't associated with any decrease in race performance. So I thought that was quite fascinating. But then again, you have to have the access to that kind of quality pasture. And before we started recording, you made a great point, Nancy, about the types of pasture that your horses would typically be out on um, in the States. Yeah, it, there are pastures and our grasses in general were designed for cattle and to fatten cattle. They're not designed for horses to be out on. That's why the high sugar content and especially when you get freezing temperatures, that sugar just goes sky high because the sugars are what actually protect the grasses in their survival. So, you know, your horses may go out there and uh, you really have to monitor, monitor them more so in the fall than you do the summer because summer drought can increase sugars, but not like freezing temperatures in the fall uh, really rise that sugar content in the grasses. And I wanted to ask you as well, Nancy, like what has your experience been with seeing tying up like from the kind of lesser signs, what would be some of your first telltale signs that um, a horse is starting to tie up right up to kind of the more extreme? When you bring them off the track, sometimes um, you're done with your gallop and you're just usually you um, loosen the girth a little bit so they can relax and you're walking back and you're still on them and you feel it that they're starting to short stride in the hind end. And the first time they do it, you're just, um, you know, upset because most of the time if they do it once, they're going to do it again. So the shortened stride behind, you unsaddle them, you go to walk them and see if they'll come out of it and their strides get shorter and shorter and then you usually call the vet to come and, and give them a, a little banamine or some pain relief and then um, back in the 90s we used to continue to, to walk them but now you just put them up in the stall and you'll see them they'll begin to sweat um, their respirations are increased um, um, you know you're almost at the end of it when they urinate and it's like they are urinating coffee. It's such mm -hmm. dark urine, but that's usually for me, that was always the sign. Okay. Uh, we're almost, we're almost through this. And I had one severe tie up. Um, it was kind of a flighty redheaded, um, two-year-old and he was recumbent and we didn't know if he would ever get back up again. He eventually did, but the vet gave him IVs and uh, pain relief and he recovered, but we really had to be so careful with him. And, you know, the one point this paper makes that's really good is that the causes of RER 
are so multifactorial and management requires attention to both diet and exercise. So kind of like changes in your training plan have to be made. So instead of um, like, we always have dark days on the track where you can't go um, on the training track. It's like maybe a Wednesday and a Sunday. So what we would do with that horse is make sure we walked him on Sundays and on Wednesdays and we have mechanical walkers or we could walk. And then if I walked and the horse was sane enough, I would let them graze too because they did need, he did need time out of the stall. And, um, you know, you just kind of change your whole uh, routine. I mean, we try to have racing when you have 80 horses in a training barn. It's a process. It's not an individual um, type of process either. Well, sometimes in RER cases, it has to become individual where you have your certain ones. And that's what I did with Greta. She wasn't a tying up horse, but because of her getting stronger and stronger and yet needing uh, time out of the stall, she got hand grazed and she was great to hand graze. She didn't try to bolt or run or kick anything like that. So that's also an added plus. If you have a person who's skilled at hand grazing these racehorses, that's wonderful therapy for them to just be able to, to get out. And we would take more than one. We would all take a horse and go out to the grassy area and just let them all eat. And as long as they behaved and you could handle them, we did that almost on a daily basis. I think that's so therapeutic as well. If you're the person that's out there just holding them. Yeah, we could talk. We could gossip and talk. (laughs) No, and you keep one eye on the horse because they're so unpredictable. But um, I mean, that's your first clue is that shortened stride behind And um, I know Dr. Valberg, which we talked about her last week, she said she's had horses with RER that you couldn't even uh, force them to walk 10 minutes that they wouldn't tie up. Those needed like four weeks of free exercise before you could even bring them back in. The worst thing she recommended is keeping them in a stall. Yeah, just have them turned out so they do loads of movement. Yeah, and and you bring them in for nighttime or whatever or if they can't have um, grass, you know, because of weight condition and, and all that. But um, you could, don't forget to check out her website because she's got good dietary advice as far as you don't want to increase protein if laminitis or uh, there's ad adipose uh, tissue on that horse, then you want to check with your vet because in those instances, she says you don't want to increase protein. So there's protocols for each individual. Yeah. You know? I think that's, it's really interesting. It's, um, I remember seeing a race horse that was, well, retired, a thoroughbred that suffered from it i think another term we used to use was azoteria i don't know if you heard of that one nancy i I think there was 
Yeah, I think I I remember that term. And that was, yeah. I think that was pertaining to the dark urine that is usually produced after yeah. the muscles start to clear. And, you know, I will say if the vet always takes a blood and the AST and that um, creatine, is it kinase? Um, that would really be high. And sometimes that doesn't even reach its peak for six hours after the damage is done. So um, you knew for sure well, that this horse tied up. So um, if you ever have one that does tie up and you think it's too late to pull blood on, it's not too late. I mean, sometimes it doesn't hit the peak for a while um, after the damage is done. That's great advice. And if you are concerned at all, then definitely just ring your vet, get them out, get them checked. Yeah. And, and I think the whole thing, my whole thing in this paper and in last week's is we just don't realize how much stress is involved in these muscle diseases. It seems like, um, stress is at the heart of it. So if you do have a horse prone to PSSM one or two, or RER, um, you know, think back what you did and what seemed to stress that horse out. I was uh, working with a vet this week. And this horse we were working on seemed very um, somewhat calm. I mean, respirations didn't seem that high. But when he went to listen to that horse's heart, it was like she was running a marathon. And so inside, just having a stranger, um, you know, dealing with her was totally freaking her out. And we didn't, we couldn't really see it. Her head wasn't vigilant. There were no pot of coffee eyes. Um, but her heart was telling the whole story. And so uh, a lot of times we don't realize how stress affects these animals. Yeah, uh, that's such a good point. Yep. So, but th I think that's about all I had. Um, the one thing I think the other thing besides stress is um, I think it's like being proactive in your management and willing to change. Whereas these trainers were kind of stuck in tradition. They knew what was causing it, but yet some of them had purchased low starch feed and then added oats to it. <laughs> so <laughs> I've been there. We do things like that and it makes absolutely no sense, but I think uh, sometimes just being open to seeking a nutritionist and maybe a ration balancing uh, being done can kind of overall give you a picture. And just knowing um, that your digestible energy, you're feeding over 20% of it in starch is, I think, a step in the right direction. I think that's great advice. And I think if it is something that um, you're new to. If you're new to working with thoroughbreds, even what kind of linked this for me was the thoroughbred that I had seen with it in the past was actually, um, I'd mentioned an ex-racer, but had been rescued. So like rehomed to just a more sedentary life. 
Um, but because they had a propensity for, you know, being skinny and not having as much weight on, they were getting fed, but not getting worked anywhere near the capacity they used to. So that was a really interesting kind of eye opener at the time when I saw that, because it's, it's kind of not where you'd expect you a lot of the time, probably link it to that high exertional energy. And this was like a come down almost from having been on the racetrack and now they're still being fed up, fed with lots of food, but massively reduced work. Yeah. Yep. That's a good point too, Kate. It's all about figuring out, um, you know, like I just did a ration calculation for one of my geldings and I was so surprised that the pasture during the summer months provided 94% of his digestible energy. Now with our uh, temperatures and the weather affecting the pastures, um, it has dropped down to 89%. So I thought to myself, you know, that just shows he still doesn't need a lot of extra groceries, but come the middle of winter, when the grass has completely died and does not have a lot of value other than sugar, um, you know, you don't need to supplement a whole lot other than a balancer unless they show it that, you know, they're losing muscle tone or um, they're not uh, a good, you know, maybe a five on a body condition score one to nine. Um, when they get below that five, then you do need to make some changes. But I, I'll i just do a ration calculation to find out where I'm missing it if that happens. And then sometimes it's a disease process, but at least your calculations are a start in the right direction. Yeah, exactly. You know, so I think that's everything I had on this one as well, Nancy. It was an interesting one and kind of to round up when we're talking about our, um, muscle myopathies yeah and you know we were so worried we wouldn't have a long enough episode (laughs) yeah (laughs) I think we always um, surprise ourselves with how long we can talk for (laughs) I think so too so thanks guys and don't forget send uh, Kate or I uh, recommendations this one was Christy recommended that we do the PSSM which led to the RER Uh, paper. And then also, um, you know, if you have any other research or comments, like um, Caitlin Rose had that comment that she wasn't quite getting the PSSM2 and the causes, just send them to us and we're happy to, uh, if we don't know the answer, we'll find it. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Nancy. Talk to you next week. Okay. Thank you, Kate. Bye-bye. Take care.